Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, author of The American Comic Book Chronicles, the 1970s and the 1990s, available through my publisher's website, Tomorrow's, that's T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S dot com, or through Amazon.com or your other favorite outlets. It's all av- also available through Diamond Comics Distribution at your local comic shop, which is a very relevant topic to today's Classic Comics Cavalcade. Um, this week, I'm going to divide Classic Comics Cavalcade into two episodes because I'm taking on a large and complicated topic, the creation, growth, and eventual monopoly status of the American comic book distribution market. Yeah, I know the topic sounds dry, but I really think you'll find it to be a fascinating look behind the scenes at the craziness the comic book industry has experienced throughout the years. This week, I'll talk about the prehistory, creation, and early growth of the direct sales market. Next week, I'll talk about the inevitable fall after the massive rise, and I'll discuss Marvel's malicious machinations and how they brought us a monopoly. So if you weren't Reading comic books before, say, 1987, you probably don't remember being able to buy comics at the same place you found other necessities. Before the rise of the direct market, more comics were distributed to mainstream stores by far than were available in the nascent direct comic book market. Those comics were distributed by the same companies which placed magazines on the stands at your local 7-Eleven, supermarket, or drugstore. It was a decentralized system very much driven by local interests and local company. There is an estimate that during this time, there were as many as 500 separate local distributors, which all had their unique, interesting uh, quirks to them. Rumor had it that many local distributors were owned by the mafia. Um, Like garbage collection and gambling, magazine distribution was often seen as highly profitable and highly corrupt. Magazines would ship from the publishers to distribution warehouses, loaded onto trucks, and brought to local stores. Popular and good-selling mags would be guaranteed a place on the stands. Dad could always find the latest Playboy centerfold each month because of the tremendous profits his local independent distributors could make off the magazine, along with the auditors who would confirm magazines actually reached the racks. Other mags did the same. Few people who wanted to read Family Circle, Newsweek, or Mad had to worry about finding them. At their high cover price and with broad appeal, the most popular magazines were important and highly profitable to both distributors and to retailers. Comic books, on the other hand, were much less important and much less profitable. They were seen as kid stuff, maybe something for mom to give to the kids while they browsed the aisles at the local Albertson supermarket or something to read when they bought a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. It was assumed that kids didn't care much what was on the racks, so it couldn't concern them if a random issue of Fantastic Four didn't make it out onto the stands. More than that, though, there was no incentive for those companies to want to get the material onto the racks. At their lower, low cover prices, comics were often seen as uh, more trouble than they were worth to pay attention to and sell in a way that added value for kids. On a 25 or 35 cent comic, the distributor stood to make maybe 7 to 10 cents per issue, a far cry from the dollar or so they made from Playboy, or 50 cents from Time. So, in many places, comics were basically just thrown onto the racks, or never even made it at all. This is despite the fact that retailers took almost no risk in racking comics, like all magazines, and for that matter, books. Comics were subject to a return system, being that unsold copies could simply be returned to a publisher for credit, 
or even worse, only the cover, or even part of a cover, would need to be returned to get the credit. In fact, by the late 70s, there was a thing called affidavit returned, which allowed you to just sign a piece of paper saying, we couldn't sell enough copies of this book, and you never had to prove anything. As you can imagine, the system was rife with corruption. It had also been the way comics and magazines had been distributed in America since the 1930s. Clearly, that system was beginning to show strains. When many magazines cost a dime, as they did in the early days, comics were a good value for everybody. By 1974, when Playboy was selling in the millions for a dollar a copy, and Newsweek was selling for 60 cents weekly, a mere 20-cent comic just wasn't worth it for anybody. And in those pre-internet days, there was no way to find more entertainment unless you actually bought a paper copy of something. Some distributors would simply never put comics on the racks, tearing off the covers before the books even reached a newsstand. The story in Russ Meharis, who worked at a distribution company in Chicago in the early 1970s, remembers the days when the short-lived Atlas comics were released. The distributor didn't know the comics, had no incentive to carry them, and doubted comics like The Cougar and Planet of the Vampires would be worth his time. So those comics simply were returned as soon as they arrived. Uh, after, of course, Russ and his buddies grabbed their copies. This contributed to a terrible sell-through. Sell-through is the ratio between copies printed and copies sold to distributors, around 15% for some Atlas titles. No wonder the line famously failed. A popular Marvel or DC book would sell somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. A really massive sellout would sell in the 75 to 80 percent, which was extraordinarily rare, in part because once you started seeing those sellouts, you would increase your print run and take a bigger chance. Uh, That was one form of corruption, but there was another form of corruption that was a kind of double-edged sword at the time. Namely, that many distributors would set up sweetheart deals with local fans to sell comics out the back door and still claim returns. Rumor has it that uh, those sorts of returns started as early as 1970, when the much-acclaimed Green Lantern Green Arrow series saw sales that were way below what anyone would have expected. Several cities never even saw issues of that comic hit their stands, which led to its quick cancellation. In that case, one of the strongest causes of the failure was distribution to collectors. The team, re, a term rather, regional scarcity came from that era, and many hot comics of the era experienced that problem. For example, Shadow Number no. 1, Shazam Number no. 1, and Howard the Duck Number no. 1 are rumored to have as many comics sold out of the backs of trucks as they did out of actual grocery drug and convenience stores. Regional scarcity means that the distributors would uh, have copies of a book in hand um, and not actually put it on the newsstand, but instead uh, make it available through fans or through a backdoor. And that meant that like people who in the, in the region who wanted to find that book couldn't find a copy of that. So a uh, copy of Howard the Duck number one might be impossible to find at a newsstand in New York City, which means that either comic shops or uh, Mail order houses were able to mark up the prices tremendously and make a few bucks profit off it. And, you know, when you're talking about a comic that retailed for a quarter, selling it for $2 was a tremendous profit and uh, really well worth going for. The burgeoning fan market was to blame for that, but it was also part of what saved comics. New York City entrepreneur Phil Sailing helped provide an alternative. Sailing approached the comic book companies and offered an alternative to the approach which required returns of comics. In exchange for discounts as high as 55%, Sailing would buy comics from the distributors on a non-returnable basis. 
With money from his network of comic and head shops funding him, Selling grew his, grew his small Seagate distributors of Coney Island, New York, into a small comics powerhouse. I should mention a quick tangent here. Head shops were uh, what those of us here in the state of Washington now know as uh, marijuana shops. Uh, they'd sell all kinds of drug paraphernalia, although not the marijuana and stuff itself. They also sold, uh, sold a... Uh, diverse set of underground comics. That's where folks like Robert Crumb uh, were able to get a tremendous amount of popularity. And some of those shops also sold mainstream comics, especially ones that are a little edgier, like the fan favorite books such as Howard the Duck and Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Um, So Chuck Rosansky, who's a retailer out of Denver, who's been in the business for almost 50 years now, um, tells the story of sailing this way. Phil began Seagate in 1972, long before selling to comic shops was economically viable. He was a school teacher at the time and was well-known in the New York area, not only as a dealer in comics and original artwork, but also as the operator of the huge 4th of July convention in New York City. As I've heard the story told, this is Phil saying that, Phil brazenly walked into DC, Marvel, Warren, Harvey, and Archie, in 1972 and convinced them that their future lay in selling comics directly to comic specialty shops. Marvel and DC, you all know, everyone on this call knows who they are. You probably all know who Archie is, of course. Uh, Warren was a magazine publisher who published uh, comics magazines such as Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella. I'm sure everyone's familiar with Vampirella. Harvey published kids' comics, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Little Lotta, um, Devil Comics, um, he approached them, too, even though their direct market sales were obviously abysmal. Um, Sailing also convinced the companies to give him a special deal by which they would pay the cost of packaging and shipping of all the books ordered by his accounts. In exchange, he promised that they would purchase all books from them on a non-returnable basis. Initially, the orders were tiny. Sailing was a school teacher, as I mentioned, and had the benefit of a steady job, so the slow growth worked for him. His company grew steadily, buoyed by the greater discounts given to stores, as well as the facts that his comics reached shops before newsstands. For fans learned they could buy the latest George Perez-drawn Avengers issue faster at Fat Frank's Comic Crypt than they could at a Wawa, so they gravitated to the comic shop. Especially since they knew they would never miss an issue and could always find missing issues in the back issue bin at that shop. It was a good system for many, but the system had its flaws. For one thing, stores had to order and pay for comics in advance at significant risk, especially if a comic shipped late. There was no previews at the time, and only small small fanzine announced forthcoming series, so in many cases stores were ordering blind. In those days before credit systems were mature, Sailing didn't offer credit to many of his clients, so they had to spend their own cash. So it was a tight business. Only small profits were to be made, but for those who were willing to eke out a living, um, there was fun to be had and a few dollars to be made. Still, it was a relatively small business with maybe 100 to 150 shops nationwide. And hey, it was the 70s, so everything was a little more seat of the pants than it is now. There's a lot I could go into in a little, in even more exhaustive depth around Seagate sub-distributors and discounts, but suffice it to say that by 1978, Sailing had bought, built a small monopoly in the direct sales comic distribution game. I was making very nice profits from that. Naturally, that inspired 
competitors such as Pacific Distributors in San Diego, New Media Urjax in the southeast, and the Donahoe Brothers in the Midwest, but Sailing and Seagate ruled the roost with the greatest discounts. While the direct market was still relatively tiny by 1978, mainstream comic book companies began to take notice. Jim Shooter uh, did so by complete happenstance. As Marvel's editor-in-chief, Shooter had access to monthly sales reports. Shooter took the reins of that job in uh, January 1978 and uh, quickly looked to turn Marvel from kind of a hobby business into a true business. And this story of him helping to spur on the growth of the direct sales market is one of the key things that helped to do so. At the bottom of the monthly sales reports, Shooter saw a line item he couldn't quite fathom. It was marked Seagate. He learned from his circulation director that the line item indicated how many copies Marvel was selling to the direct market through Phil Sailing. Upon examining the Seagate figures, Shooter made a startling discovery. While most titles had direct market sales of 7,000 or 8,000 copies, the titles produced by Jack Kirby had direct market orders of 30,000 copies each. That's That's almost enough to sustain a book exclusively, Shooter thought. Kirby's titles had the worst sell-through percentages at the newsstand, but they were far and away Marvel's bestsellers at the comic shops. With that information, Shooter knew the direct market warranted further exploration and testing. Now, just to go off on a tiny bit of a tangent here, um, I was 12 in 1978, so um, I was uh, among those who was experienced at Kirby really for the first time through his uh, late 70s comics, which were Black Panther, uh, Devil Dinosaur, Captain America. And I remember distinctly, like as clear as I remember talking to you about direct sales comics, um, my friends and I talking about Jack the Hack, how his comics were terrible, unreadable, stupid, out of touch with the times. Um, It's no surprise to me that his comics sold abysmally because they just felt completely outside of the of the 1970s they felt like something from a decade before like our parents comics um but it's interesting because the people in the parents age group were still interested in kirby and they still wanted to read those comics and you know what uh, i've kind of come around in those comics they're not the greatest things he ever did but they're certainly very very entertaining um even if shooter had hadn't learned about seagate via the sales reports he would have learned about the company later in the year that's because in 1978, Urjax Enterprises, a distribution company based in Rockville, Maryland, filed an antitrust lawsuit against all the mainstream comic book publishers for their business dealings with Seagate. The crux of Urjax's complaint was that Seagate enjoyed better trade terms than what was offered to the other emerging direct market distributors. For instance, the publishers paid their mutual printer to, quote, dropship comic books directly to Seagate's customers. The other distributors, though, had to pay paid to have comics shipped to their warehouses, and then they had to charge customers for final delivery. The differing trade turns ensured Seagate could undercut any of its competitors. In other words, Seagate benefited from an inherently unfair advantage, and it was the publishers who allowed Seagate to have that advantage. It was a lawsuit the publishers couldn't win, and they knew it. Since the validity of Urjak's claim could not be distrib- disputed, each publisher had no choice but to negotiate a settlement with Urjax. The only question left to be answered was how heavy a price each publisher was going to have to pay. Over the course of five years, Marvel's sales via the direct market had increased 20-fold, from $300,000 in 1974 to $6 million in 1979. 
Chuck Rosansky was one of the people who helped Marvel get to that point. He owned four comic book stores in Colorado, as well as a back-issue mail-order business. In 1979, though, Rosansky had become fed up with how Seagate operated as a distributor. Most aggravating to him was the fact that Seagate required all accounts to prepay for the comics they ordered, months before those comics could actually be delivered. For Rosansky, this stipulation created an ongoing and debilitating cash flow problem. Rosansky had no doubt the direct market system had the potential to generate much more revenue for the entire comic book industry. Indeed, from Rosansky's vantage point, the direct market was the industry's sole means of survival, but only if the way in which the direct market operator was changed. In 1979, on May 9th, Rosansky wrote to Robert T. Maeo, Marvel's manager of sales administration. The letter lambasted Marvel for not providing any support to the comic shops that were providing an ever-increasing percentage of its sales. After spelling out what he saw as the comic industry's major problems, specifically that industry-wide sales have plunged from 600 million copies per year in 1959 to 250 in 1978, that's less than half, Rosansky outlined a series of needed changes, like allowing worthy direct market retailers to pay COD, and having publishers finally, finally provide advanced information about their upcoming comics. Ours is a dying industry, the letter stated, and if we don't get together and cooperate, there will be no comic books at all. Rosansky sent copies of his letter to some 300 retailers and publishers. Over 100 sent follow-up letters to Marvel to support his position. To Rosansky's astonishment, shortly after mailing his letter, he received a phone call from Ed Shukin, Marvel's vice president of marketing, who invited the retailer to New York for a discussion. Legs shaking and full of panic, Rosansky made the trip east and sat down with Shukin one fateful day in May. As it turned out, Shukin was the one who had reason to be afraid. Several months before Rosansky mailed his letter, Marvel, DC, Archie, and Warren had been sued by another had been sued by Urjax, I should say, for antitrust violations in connection with Sailing's Seagate Company. The lawsuit claimed that the publishers provided Sailing with better trade terms than what other distributors received, effectively giving Seagate quasi-monopoly status. If Shukin couldn't get Marvel out of this mess, he was going to lose his job. Besides Shukin, Rosansky also met with Marvel President Jim Galton and with Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter, who turned out to be a kindred spirit. Like Rosansky, Shooter divined that in order for comic, the comic book industry to survive, it had to evolve beyond its newsstand origins and embrace the specialty store model. The industry's future success required an expansion of the direct market, and to aid that expansion, Shooter and Shukin drafted some new trade terms that would allow anyone to become a distributor of Marvel Comics. To receive a 60% wholesale discount, free freight delivery, and a 30-day billing cycle, all a person or company needed to do was to publish $3,000 worth of Marvel Comics each month. That amounted to nearly 19,000 comics each month, and while many copies, that many copies was too many for any one store to sell, retailers like Rosansky realized they could distribute many of those copies to other stores in their area. Essentially, Marvel was offering better trade terms than even Seagate could provide. Upon recognizing this, Rosansky signed on as the first Marvel direct market distributor. As many others joined him, Seagate's control over the direct market distribution ended. And uh, DC quickly followed suit, providing similar and uh, effective trade terms that would allow 
distributors to sell both Marvel and DC. And of course, many jumped into selling both those and other companies as well. Uh, And it shouldn't be forgotten either that the rise in the direct market couldn't have come at a better time for mainstream publishers. The 1970s was a devastating decade for American comic books. That's a topic for another future episode of this podcast, but suffice it to say that by 1978, both Marvel and DC might have collapsed without the runaway of success of Marvel's Star Wars adaptation and the popularity of the Christopher Reeve Superman movie at the box office. The direct market provided a lifeline out of that abyss. It was a lifeline that would especially help Marvel into the 1980s, but also start a boom in comic book companies distributed exclusively to the direct market. Several comics were hits in the immediate aftermath of the new direct market. Dave Sim launched Cerebus in 1977, and the weird, funny, and quirky black-and-white comic found a welcoming home in the direct market. Wendy and Richard Peeney also launched their ElfQuest in 78, gaining a tremendous cult popularity. Others published directly to comic shops, such as Kitchen Sink's Deluxe Reprints of the Spirit, Jack Katz's Features History of the First Kingdom, and Don McGregor and Paul McGlick. Paul Galassi's thrilling future adventure story, Saber. Saber is important for many reasons, and we may talk about that in the future as well. But one of them is that it was the first direct-only comic book created by two former Marvel creators. Other mavericks soon followed suit, such as Steve Gerber, Gene Colan, and even Jack Kirby. That led to an exodus of creators who began creating work for some of the new comics companies, even as Marvel and DC continued to grow. New companies popped up, such as Eclipse, Pacific, and Capital Comics, publishers whose work was distributed by the burgeoning comic book distribution business, unleashed by the Marvel and DC contracts. Quick to observe an opportunity, both Marvel and DC experimented with direct-only comics. After Marvel's March 1981 Dazzler No. 1 sold over 400,000 copies, terrible comic too, both companies plunged full board into the direct sales world. DC released Madame Xanadu No. 1 to the direct sales market in April. Good comic. In January 1982, Marvel converted Moon Knight and Kazar the Savage from newsstand comics to direct sales. Kazar, by the way, is one of the great lost comics of the 1980s. Uh, so good. So interesting. Still stands up today. And it's just kind of mostly forgotten. Micronauts followed the same the next month. In February 82, went direct sales only. Marvel also released a Silver Surfer special by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Not Stan Lee and John Byrne. Gotcha. Exclusively to the direct market that same month, along with a humorous Fantastic Four roast by fan favorite Fred Hembeck. The fan market had proven to be a viable industry. Phil Sailing was right, and direct sales helped the bottom line of many comics companies help spawn a slew of new businesses. Like a phoenix, comics had emerged from their own ashes. By 1985, there were as many as 20 different distributors in America. Heck, by even 1989, an issue of the Comics Journal listed some 16 distributors. That wasn't uncommon during that era, as entrepreneurs entered and left the business as industry booms and busts inevitably hit. And although the system wasn't perfect, the equilibrium between the direct sales and newsstands markets helped Marvel and DC enjoy stability and growth, tremendous growth for Marvel in particular, throughout the 1980s. Their direct market wasn't perfect, but it seemed to work all right. Until the time stopped working all right. But that's a topic for next week's Classic Comics Cavalcade. Thanks for joining me this week. Catch you later. Oh, thank you.